glad that you are here with us uh, this morning and during this Advent season. Uh, if you're just joining us today, uh, this may be a little bit different for you. We are uh, celebrating the season of Advent. Uh, that, that's this time in the Christian calendar that comes before Christmas, that leads up to Christmas. And that word Advent means arrival. And traditionally, it's been a time of waiting uh, for Christmas Day in which we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And commonly, uh, we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus. But also, as people who live between the first and the second comings of Jesus, we also wait for and celebrate Jesus' second arrival. And so to do that this, this season, we have actually been looking at images, uh, visions of Jesus from the book of Revelation Maybe a little bit different than is common, uh, but, uh, but very helpful for us as a waiting people. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started this by looking at Revelation 1, and we saw Jesus as this awesome king who both confronts and comforts. And then last week, uh, Zach took us through Revelation 5. We saw Jesus as the lamb who is worthy. And he's unworthy to unfold the scroll of God's purposes in history. And what is it that makes him worthy? He's worthy because he was willing to sacrifice himself to ransom a people, uh, to buy his own people, his church. And what we would see uh, as Jesus opens the scroll is uh, that the rest of the book of Revelation from uh, Revelation chapter 5 all the way to the very end of the book is a series of visions in which God's purposes are revealed. Uh, now, they're revealed in symbolic form, but what we see is this conflict, a conflict between uh, God and his lamb, Jesus, uh, his people, the church, and their enemies. Uh, and that, uh, that series of visions always ends in the same way. It ends with God getting the victory over his enemies. And so the vision that we're going to look at today um, is going to be one part of that. Today's passage is going to focus on one part of the end of history, uh, and that is where Jesus returns as judge. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 21. If you're using the church Bible there, uh, it should be on page 1040. Now, Uh, Just a heads up, as I read this, uh, you may find some of these images shocking, uh, terrifying, graphic, uh, and that's okay. It's good for the the Bible to shock us out of our stupor sometimes. We can be so familiar uh, with what the Bible says that we uh, miss what's right in front of us. So it's good for the Bible to shock us. I also want you to remember that, that Revelation uses pictures... And symbols to reveal the truth. Uh, And that means that everything we read, especially in Revelation, is not meant to be taken literally. Now, just because it's not literal doesn't mean it's not true. Right? Just because something is said symbolically doesn't mean it's not true. Right? If I say that Bob is a mountain of a man, do I mean that Bob is a tall, rocky, geological, geological feature that comes up out of the surface of the earth? Of course not. I mean that he's big and he's strong, right? So I'm saying something true about Bob, but I'm using symbolic language to say it. And that's what we see here uh, in Revelation. So let's read 
Uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. I'm going to pray first, and then I'll read it. Let's pray. Our good and gracious King, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it, Lord, that the eternal truths written in it would transform us, uh, that we would be a people of hope and comfort, that you would help us to endure just as you did our brothers and sisters in the first century when they read and heard these things. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. A diadem was a crown, a special crown that signified the highest authority, and this rider wears many. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. And all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God endures forever. May he bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of his holy word. Amen. As with so many parts of Revelation, when we read that, we want to ask, what in the world is going on here? Right? Dead bodies, uh, vultures gathering to eat the flesh of these defeated armies. Is this even a text we should read at Christmas time? Right? But I think it is. And hopefully you'll see why as we go through. And I think even if we go back in the Bible, uh, back to the Psalms, this moment that we witness here in Revelation 19 may make more sense to us. 
Because if you go back, uh, when we go back to the psalm, what, psalms, what we find there are, are several prayers that sound like this. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all, the, all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 3. Psalm thirty-five, seventeen. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Psalm 74, 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Psalm 90, 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repays the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? These are just a sample. There's more. Uh, A sample of the prayers that beg God to act, to judge wickedness, to defend his people, to make things Right. That's what we're that's what we're seeing in Revelation 19. Let's let's not overcomplicate it. What is happening in Revelation 19? All of the imagery we can we can simplify it down to this. If you hear nothing else, what is happening in Revelation 19 is a picture of the last day when Jesus will return in judgment and He will make things right. Everything every Every word, every crossword, every evil deed, every, every wicked thing will be set right on this last day when Jesus returns. That's what's happening in Revelation 19. Jesus will return to judge his enemies and vindicate his people. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to take each part of that uh, and, and look at it in turn. First, Jesus will return... As judge, that's the first truth that this we should glean from this. He will return as judge. Uh, John, for the first time in the book, up until this point, he's seen a door open in heaven and he's been invited to look in. But now he sees heaven opened. And so what scholars say is that now what what John sees will be revealed to all. No longer, no longer secret. It will be revealed in the sight of all. And, and what is it that he sees? He sees a rider on a white horse, right? a mark of purity, a mark of victory. And this rider has flaming eyes. We've seen that image before in Revelation 1, and here it is again. These flaming eyes that see through everything. He cannot be deceived. He cannot be made a fool. He wears many diadems, many crowns, a sign of his exalted authority. He is unmatched. And we see in verse 13 that his robe is bloody. Whose blood? When we look in verse 15, it says that he has tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. What is that all about? Well, both of those come from Isaiah 63, which is a vision of the Messiah, of the conquering Messiah. Isaiah is like a a watchman on a wall, and as he looks out from the city, he sees this conqueror coming up from the field of battle and he's covered in blood and he 
And he says, where have you come from? And this conqueror says, I have come from treading the wine press of God's wrath all alone. Why, why a wine press? What's a wine press? Well, when you made wine, this may gross you out just a little bit, but when you made wine in the ancient world, there was a box, right, full of grapes, and you would stomp on the grapes, and the juice would run out the bottom and be collected for wine, okay? They would clean their feet before they did that, all right? But in Isaiah, that image becomes one of God's judgment on his enemies, as the Messiah treads the wine press all alone, and he says their blood has spattered on his garments. That's who John sees now, this victorious king riding out from defeating his enemies. And he has a sword coming from his mouth. Again, it's his word. And he judges and he conquers by his word. This tells us that uh, God's true word is the standard by which the nations will be judged. Not our own standards of truth and justice. We don't make up what is right and wrong. God's truth does that. And it is by that truth that he will uh, divide people. It is by that truth that he will make war. And he will sentence his enemies to death. And what is this righteous judge called? It can be a little confusing because he, he receives several names. Uh, in this passage, but first in verse 12, it says that he has a name that only he knows. What in the world does that mean? Well, when you look back through the Bible, we see that God names lots of people. He names Adam. He names Abraham. He even tells Mary and Joseph what to name their baby son, Jesus. And what, when God does that, it is a mark of his authority. He is declaring who they are. But you'll notice that no one, no one else, no human ever names God. They do not have, we do not have the authority to do that. He, when he reveals his name, he reveals himself. And he reveals his name when he wants to. And when he does, it reveals who he is. And so what we see here is that this writer has the authority to reveal his own name in his own time. It's not that he's keeping it a secret from everybody. He alone has the authority, the sovereignty, to declare who he is. And we see his name revealed in a couple of ways in this passage. First, he's called faithful and true. What does that mean? He's faithful because he keeps his promises. He's true because he's not corrupt or deceitful, which is what you want in a judge. You want an honest man. You want a man who cannot be corrupted. He's also called the word of God. Not only is the word the sword that comes from his mouth, but he himself is the word of God. And John, uh, John 1 calls Jesus this. He reveals the true nature of God. He is God's revelation in human form. And then finally, as he rides out to strike the nations and rule them, which is an image from Psalm 2, John sees a name on his thigh where a sword would normally be. And that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the highest king. 
No Lord is greater or has more authority than him. This is who John sees. And what does this writer come to do? He tells us in verse 11, he comes to judge righteously and to make war. You see, this is a king. Because in the ancient world, it was kings who rendered judgment and made war. Kings had the final say. So here is King Jesus coming at the end of all things to finally make things right by judging and making war on his enemies. In fact, the the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a teaching tool originally designed for children, talks about how Jesus executes the office of prophet, priest, and king. And in the question dealing with the king, it says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to himself, by ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's what Jesus is doing here in Revelation 19. He comes to conquer all his and our enemies. So let's turn our attention to that. What does it mean that Jesus will judge and defeat his enemies? This is certainly not the side of Jesus we prefer, is it? In the same way that children don't prefer their parents as disciplinarians. It's certainly not what we would normally talk about at this time of year. But I want you to remember that even the first Christmas... Even the childhood of Jesus was tainted by violence and evil. Do you remember the story of King Herod, threatened by another king, threatened by the arrival of this Messiah? What does he do to try to secure his own power? He has his soldiers go and murder every boy in Bethlehem up to two years old. Who answers for that? When will that be made right? Right here. So even at the first Christmas, tainted by violence and evil, we know that it's there and we long for a day when it will be made right. Who are these enemies that Jesus will defeat? If you read through Revelation, uh, we meet five different enemies of Jesus and his people. The first that we meet is a seven-headed dragon. John identifies him as the serpent from the garden. He's called the devil and the accuser, Satan. And he is the force, he is the supernatural force behind all the other enemies that are introduced in the book of Revelation. And he wears seven diadems in mockery of the true king who wears many. And the dragon gives his authority to a massive Ten-headed beast who wears ten diadems. Again, evil can only mock the good. And he represents, it represents every human empire opposed to God and to his purposes. King Herod, Rome, and Nero, and on and on the list goes. And there's a second beast. And John says he looks like a lamb... 
but he speaks like a dragon. So he looks fair and he speaks foul. He is a deceiver. He is the false prophet. And it's his job to deceive people so that they worship the beast. So that they worship uh, godless authority. And then the fifth enemy we meet is Babylon, the whore. And she represents all of the pleasures that entice people away from God. Wealth, beauty, sex, power, etc. And she rides on top of the beast and she looks very very attractive. But in her golden cup is not delicious wine, it is death. All of these enemies together represent all the evil forces opposed to God and to his purposes. And following these enemies are the people who bear the mark of the beast. Now, There's a lot of speculation about what that mark is. Is it a barcode tattooed on you? Is it a chip inserted in your neck? Is it a vaccine? Right, y'all, this is why we use the Bible to interpret the Bible and not the newspaper or Google. Okay? Specific speculation about the mark really misses the point. Because what we see back in Revelation 7 is that the Lamb's people... God's people, those who are ransomed by the Lamb, they also bear a mark. They are sealed on their foreheads. They bear His name. Now that's symbolic. Does that literally mean that every follower in Jesus has the name Jesus tattooed across their forehead? Of course not. It's symbolic. Just as the mark of the beast is symbolic. What it means is that both sides in this cosmic battle are marked by the ones who own them. God's people are marked, they are sealed by him. That means he will never leave them nor forsake them. But then there are all the people who are opposed to King Jesus, and they're marked as well. They're marked by the beast. And the beast's mark is a mockery of God's mark, God's seal. What do we do with all of this? What does this tell us? A few things. Not only... One, there is supernatural evil in the world, but that supernatural evil is expressed in very human form. That, that the great serpent uh, animates human institutions, governments, people, and that those institutions, governments, people are opposed to Jesus and to his church. As uncomfortable as it is to say, there are enemies of God, and not just supernatural. Now, Paul says this, right, that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the authorities uh, and powers. It's against supernatural evil. So that doesn't mean that you're at war with your neighbor who may not know Jesus. But it does mean that on the last day, those who are opposed to Jesus will be judged. And that will be a terrifying thing. That is a terrifying reality. As uncomfortable as it is to say, there will be a final judgment. Human rebellion, wickedness, sin, evil, they will be dealt with finally and fully. 
And friend, you want that. Every time you are slandered and maligned, you want that. Every, every time someone takes advantage of you or does something to you, attacks you, shames you, bullies you, right? Every single one of us wants justice. And justice is coming. But here's the bad news. When Jesus returns, all who have not trusted in him will face eternal punishment. Will be separated from God forever. You see, my sin and your sin will be judged. And it will be judged by God's grace. It will be judged in one of two ways. Either it was judged finally and fully on the cross of Christ. Your sin was judged there. That's what was happening on Calvary that day. That if you trust in Jesus, then your sentence, what you deserve, was carried out on him. That's one way that sin is dealt with. Sin must be judged. It's either judged on Jesus and he covers you with his righteousness. Or it will be judged on you on the last day. And you will face the judge without any covering whatsoever. You will have to face the judge and you will have to explain yourself. Friend, today is the day to make peace. Right now, before the judge returns, this is the moment when the emissaries of God go out into all creation. And they're carrying a message of reconciliation. Saying, bow the knee, make peace now. Because when the king returns, the offer for peace will be withdrawn. And what will be left will be judgment. Not only will Jesus judge and defeat his enemies, but we also see in this passage that he will vindicate his people. You see, judgment and salvation are really two sides of the same coin. There's judgment for one and salvation for the other. Notice that the lamb does not ride out alone. But riding behind him, arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure, are his people, his army. And notice, he's bloody, not them. In fact, they're not even very well dressed for war. Nobody goes to battle in linen. But they're wearing the color of purity and victory, just like Jesus. And they, too, are in the crosshairs of the beast, right? The, the beast gathers all the kings of the earth. He gathers their armies, and they come to make war on the rider and on his army. But notice just how short this battle is, right? You... You get the anticipation. You can almost kind of see the Marvel movie, right? Or Braveheart or Gladiator 
right? We've become accustomed to kind of these huge set pieces at the end of every uh, adventure movie where there's a, a last great battle. All the forces gather together and the battle begins and, and the good guys are winning one second and the bad guys are on top and then the good guys again and the bad guys and it's always in doubt as to who's going to win this battle. There's no doubt in Revelation 19. The beast and his armies gather to make war on the rider and his army. And in the next verse, the beast is captured. There's not even a fight. It's over before it begins. The head of the whole thing is defeated before a sword is even drawn. And the armies are routed and defeated. Jesus wins for his people. It doesn't say anything about his people picking up arms and going to war against their enemies because Jesus does it all for him, does it all for them. He does it all himself. Jesus is our victor. He is the one who vindicates us. We do not vindicate ourselves. In fact, we cannot vindicate ourselves. We, we do not appear before the judge with our own record of righteousness. We do not appear before the judge and say, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. You should pick me for your team. Now, I think if we're honest, we realize that we need to be covered in the righteousness of another, which is exactly what Jesus does. What does that mean for the believer For those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It means, and this is what Revelation shows us again and again and again, we will be maligned and slandered and accused. And Jesus will vindicate us. That's why we chose the call to repentance that we did. That's why Paul can say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the Lord who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We don't have to vindicate ourselves. We don't have to defend every action and every word. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And we allow Him to vindicate us. That means, friend, that this side of heaven, if you're in Christ, you will be misunderstood. I had a friend uh, share in talking about this passage how uh, he and his wife have tried to be very generous with her family. They don't know the Lord. And repeatedly their generosity is seen as manipulation. You're trying to manipulate us. You're trying to get something out of us. They're insulted. Their motives are, are impugned. But rather than defend themselves... They just continue to be generous and allow the Lord to sort it out. We can do that. We can be we we can endure in hope even through tears. Right? We shouldn't we shouldn't read this scene of judgment and be happy. But we should be hopeful. Hopeful that God will win the day. It's why we chose the songs that we did today. 
There's the saints in the, in the church's one foundation. One of the verses that uh, we didn't sing says that the saints, their watch are keeping, their cry goes up. How long? But soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song. So this chapter should give us hope. But then also, too, I think of Abraham standing on the ridge above Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot is down in the valley, camped outside of Sodom. And God is coming to rain judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham stands there with the Lord and bargains with him. He pleads with him. Lord, would you spare the city if you find ten righteous people? The Lord says, sure. Abraham says, will you spare the city if you find five righteous people? Abraham pleading with God to have mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. Friend, that can be us. When we see this vision of the conquering king coming to bring final judgment, the mo- what, what we do before this moment as we, as we think of people who currently stand opposed to our Lord and we plead with him for them. We plead that they would turn. We plead that they would repent. We plead that they would trust in Jesus and be covered in his righteousness. That's what this passage should cause followers of Jesus to do. Before the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, we dropped leaflets. And they read like this. This is a message from the President of the United States, Harry Truman, to the people of Japan. The only way to avoid complete destruction of your family, home, economy, and nation is to immediately cease all military activities and surrender unconditionally. Friend, Something worse than an atomic bomb is coming. Judgment for every thought, word, and deed opposed to God is coming. And it's coming in the person of Jesus. And so I invite you this morning to cease all hostilities and surrender. Here's what that doesn't mean. If you hear this and you say, all right, I need to straighten up. I need to make myself right so that Jesus will accept me. That's not the message of the gospel. You cannot make yourself right. Only Jesus can make you right. And so don't try to stand on your own merit. Don't try to say, okay, well, maybe I can outweigh the good, outweigh the bad with some of the good that I do. No, 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 no. Throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus. Surrender to him. Say, I have sinned in more ways than I even know, and I need you to have mercy 
on me. I trust that your judgment was for, for my sin was carried out on you on the cross. That's what it means to surrender to Jesus. Not make yourself better, but throw yourself on him and trust that he will declare you not guilty. Would you do that today before the judge returns? Let me pray. Lord, either you carry our judgment on your cross or we must carry it ourselves. I pray that those within the sound of my voice would surrender to you while there's still time, that they would let you carry their judgment rather than seek to bear it themselves on the last day. Lord, I pray that we would live as your people with urgency, that we would live as a people who are awaiting final judgment, that we would live with hope and endurance, that we would not be afraid, that we would not be bitter or vindictive, but that we would live as those who are freed from such things because we are trusting final judgment to you. And we pray it in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.